0: Don't you want kids? It's a question I've heard too many times, from aunties to relative strangers. It's a choice that is very personal, but also, somehow, everyone's business. It's particularly been top of mind because having children, or not having children, is another way millennials are apparently ruining everything. It's true, millennials are having fewer children than previous generations, and apparently dating less, and making those choices in the context of less financial security, more debt, and higher costs of childcare than previous generations as well. In this episode, we're taking a closer look at whether it's that millennials don't want kids, or responsibly can't, or something else. I'm Asma Malik, and this is Avocado Toast, a podcast from the Atkinson Foundation. From researchers to activists to people who are living it, we want to build the movement towards decent work in every sector, Millennial myths, prepare to be busted. Alana Powell has had her fair share of experience juggling precarious work while trying to find financial stability to start a family of her own. She's worked in the sector as an advocate and early childhood educator. She recently transitioned out to do her master's in early childhood studies at Ryerson University. Alana is also currently working as a task force member and facilitator with the Decent Work Project at the Association of Early Childhood Educators of Ontario. We talked about how millennials like her have had to negotiate their desires to start a family given all the challenges.
1: My name's Alana Marie Powell, and I'm currently a student in the Master's of Arts and Early Childhood Studies program at Ryerson University, and I'm a contract lecturer at George Brown College.
0: Very cool. So, we are talking about, um, like I said, a pretty interesting myth about millennials, and it's about millennials, particularly and children, and the myth that millennials don't want kids. And I want to know from you, what Are your ambitions for career and family, uh, what were they maybe 10 years ago and what are they now? Well,
1: certainly I think my ambitions for both career and children were very different 10 years ago. Unfortunately, I think now I might call them idealistic because I really thought it would be possible by that at this point in my life, I would have a full-time stable job and have children already. But through my experiences, you know, those decisions have been almost impossible to make and have unfortunately just kept getting pushed off. So now, you know, my vision is really what's, what's going to happen in six months? And when can I start to make real decisions for my future? And, and when am I going to be able to say, yes, okay, now we're ready to have a family. Now we're ready to have children.
0: And, and why was that? What changed?
1: I think just uh, the challenges finding full-time, stable work that allows you to financially support a family uh, was certainly one of them. Like After graduating university, I couldn't find a full-time job, so I worked full-time in the service industry, but that kind of lifestyle, those uh, shift work hours didn't really encourage that stability that I wanted in a family life. And then when I did finally get into um, a full-time position as an early childhood educator, I found that while I did make, I'd say, a relatively high wage in the city of Toronto, it still wasn't a livable wage. I still worked part-time. So I worked five days a week at a child care centre, and I worked on the weekends at the bars still to make ends meet and pay off student loans. And it just felt like that was no situation to start a family with or bring a child into because the last thing I want to do is is put my family and I in a you know in a more precarious situation moving
0: forward. And you made a shift, right?
1: Yeah, I ended up leaving my full time job, which I loved, uh, to go back to school in the hopes that maybe I, down the road someday I could get a full time job that would allow me to make those decisions.
0: And was there a tipping point for you that you know forced you to kind of say I got to make some tough choices? Ugh.
1: Yes I tell the story all the time and it it's it's really hard because it, it I think it was something that I I just kept going through the motions and you know week by week you do what you're doing and and some of these choices you try not to think about because they're really hard when you realize that you want to be doing something you're not able to do but my husband and I were Christmas shopping and we were walking down a an aisle in the store. And on one side were toys and on the other side were infant snowsuits. And I just burst into tears because so badly I wanted us to have a baby. And I wanted it not to be a snowsuit hanging on a store rack, but a snowsuit that, you know, our child was wearing. And, and I think at that point I realized, okay, this isn't working for us. And it's obviously not working for me if I'm crying in a Walmart. So, uh, after that I started to look into programs and and what decision I could make hopefully so that we could speed along that process and and start our family
0: yeah You are someone who worked in the in the child care sector and obviously with a lot of families and what did you learn from that experience as well about the choices that you know particularly young people young families are making around raising a family and uh, and the type of work they have uh, available to them?
1: There are not real choices for families to make in our system right now, unfortunately. Uh, far too many people have to, specifically women, are exiting the workforce because they can't access childcare, afford childcare, or access subsidies. And even then, when families are able to access those services it's often a great sacrifice you know to things they'd like to be doing or they take jobs they may not want to do because it allows them to access childcare. and it's just not a way I think for society to take care of people or to to encourage people to be happy and healthy when you're negotiating a system that's so fragmented and and you're on 17 waitlists for childcare and a subsidy waitlist and you're waiting to go back to work and everything has to happen at the same time. That's an incredible amount of stress. And for a young person deciding to enter that broken system that's not going to support you, that's a really challenging choice, I think.
0: Does it seem like... um there, there is only a certain group of people who get to make that choice in good conscience. Is that, um, you know, a bit of an assumption that you've seen or faced? Is that like, you know, it is the people who have the means who uh, somehow are the only ones who can imagine raising a family without that, you know, some of those immediate stressors.
1: Yeah, I think there's certainly, I mean, even now it's challenging for even middle-class families to access the system. If you have two working parents, then likely one of those salaries is completely going into your child care funds. So you're essentially working to support your child care services. So that's challenging even for middle-class families if they can access it. But I think especially for Uh, people working more precarious jobs, it just kind of perpetuates this reliance on the system.
0: There's so much that we've identified and that we've been hearing about a lot lately about the challenges in the system, the challenges to find childcare, especially in a city like Toronto. When you find it, it's not affordable. Are you part of some of the, the movements around that? And, uh, and what have you seen over your time as an uh, early childhood educator yourself and then now outside of that, that sector?
1: Yeah, so I've been working with the Association of Early Childhood Educators on, of Ontario on their Decent Work project, which is really exciting. And what we've been looking at is, is how do we start to build the conversation around just not making childcare services more accessible and affordable, but also providing decent work for the educators who are working in that sector – Currently in Ontario, 25% of educators are making under $15 an hour.
0: And who are those educators? What makes up the sector?
1: I largely women, predominantly women, and you often find in the lower-paying jobs it's racialized or marginalized groups that are filling those positions. And to have individuals working in a in a sector that is so socially important and so valuable who have knowledge and experience and training and education that are making below living wage is really atrocious. And so we've been working with the sector to try and raise their voices and call for more stable funding that really allows parent fees to stay low and hopefully decrease while increase um, Compensation and improve working conditions for early childhood educators. There's far too many in the province who are working second jobs, who can't afford childcare services themselves, who don't have a career trajectory. Uh, that was one of the biggest things I noticed while I was working in the field. Was there was Always, there wasn't a clear path in terms of where am I going in this career? What will my salary look like in 10 years? What are my options if I increase my education or training? And those are things that really help to recruit and retain quality staff and improve um, their longevity in the field and their quality of life. One of the first things uh, that happened in the project was going around the province and talking to ECEs in their communities to help identify what are the challenges they're facing. And from that, the ACO developed um, a shared vision for decent work. So what are uh, the common things that early childhood educators and childcare workers need for decent work in their sector? And then from there, we built communities of practice across the province, so went out and worked with educators uh, providing them some skill building and training to empower them to be out having these conversations about this is what we need and this is how the government can support us in getting it.
0: And what was the connection between communities and families and parents themselves in your efforts? Um,
1: well, we're really trying to reach out to parents and the broader community as well because their needs and and the needs of the workforce are intrinsically connected, right? I. Uh, Salaries right now are based predominantly off income from parent fees. So at this point, if an early childhood educator wants a salary increase or a benefits package... Uh, or our paid sick days, that uh, the money to support that comes directly from parent fees. And nobody wants those two things to be in contest, right? We want parent fees to go down. We want child care to be accessible and affordable. But early childhood educators deserve a decent wage and deserve decent working conditions.
0: What made you want to be an ECE in the first place? So?
1: I think that there's just something really powerful about being able to work with people and especially with young children. And it's an opportunity to make a contribution towards their lives in that moment, but also the kind of world that you hope we have in 10, 20, 30 years. Are we raising caring individuals who think thoughtfully about each other? Those are the sort of things that matter to me. And that was working as an educator was one way that I could do that.
0: Why is having a family important to you?
1: That's a, I feel like that's a hard question to vocalize the answer to. Um, I just think that, well... We need to have strong families and communities so that we have a strong society, a strong province. And, I mean, that feels like a really pragmatic answer to the question. But I, can't, I don't think I can really explain why I want to have a family. It's just part of who I am. And it's part of something that I've always wanted to do and now more than ever ever I just I feel like it's a part of who I am I want to be a mother I want to have children it's I would have told myself 10 years ago get to work on changing this system now And, and maybe in 10 years you'll be able to access child care and start your family that's what I would tell myself child care and earlier services are important regardless of whether or not you have children right? They're socially valuable services that we need to do a better job providing. And really it comes down to how are we taking care of people?
0: Carolyn Ferns has a bachelor's and master's degree in early childhood studies. She worked for over 10 years at the Child Care Resource and Research Unit, where she co authored the Early Childhood Education and Care in Canada series. She currently works at the Ontario Coalition for Better Child Care as a public policy and government relations coordinator. We spoke to her about some of the challenges that face young people in a gig economy who do want to raise a family.
2: My name is Carolyn Ferns, uh, and I'm the Public Policy Coordinator at the Ontario Coalition for Better Childcare. and I'm currently on maternity leave with uh, my eight-month-old son, Rowan.
0: Uh, it's great that we're able to talk, and there is an idea that millennials don't want kids and don't want to raise families, and from your experience, is there truth to that?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that that's, it's definitely a myth to say that they, that they don't want to. Um, But like many myths, it's got a kernel of truth to it. So um, it is true that, um, you know, many people are uh, choosing not to start a family or are delaying starting a family, delaying having a child until they're much older. So we see that um, reflected in demographics and the the birth rate and and, uh, the average age of mothers continues to go up. There's now more mothers that are... Um, you know forty years old than there than there are in their in the you know early twenties, which used to be you know the the opposite um so definitely people are delaying having having kids or opting not to have them but the myth there is the want not wanting them or um or you know the desire not being there where often oftentimes it's actually um other constraints some of financial constraints uh that are are placed on on uh, on people that affects their decision to start a family. I worked for, you know, decade in the the nonprofit sector, and it took that amount of time and more to um, find a job that had, um, you know, maternity leave top up, for example, um, you know, that had, you know, that stable salary coming in. And, you know, and my partner as well was uh, went you know, went to graduate school, did his PhD, you know, there's a lot of time in there you spent doing your education. So I think that exactly fits what you see happening happening right now um people are uh you know going to school for longer and then they it takes a long time to establish themselves uh in a career uh and i mean that gets right to the heart of, of decent work people are working multiple jobs precarious work um and uh there's a lot of challenges to to starting a family and one of those uh here in canada is the lack of childcare as well right I had a heads-up about that <laughs> working at the coalition and uh, working in child care. But I had lots of friends who were starting families who, for them, it was a shock, right? They they would find that, you know, c- c- come come the end of maternity leave, they had expected that there was, you know, there would be some way of finding child care. And then they would find that there was, a, you know, a, a, a long waiting list, uh, for child care even if you were willing to pay full fees, right? So I've been involved in the childcare fight now for uh over over a decade and uh it's it's been uh, it's always stops and starts in uh, the the childcare battle, right? You you see uh you know one government, a provincial government or local government, um, take some action on childcare, but then you often see, you know, two steps back at the same time. Um so what we've been saying Lately is that, you know, to really get traction on the child care issue, we need all three levels of government to work together on child care to really see it make a difference for families, right? We need federal leadership um, and we need the provincial governments to step up and really create child care systems as well as support from the local level, right? And that's both uh, in Ontario, both municipalities and school boards will have a role to play in child care. It's a very labor-intensive service, and that's a good thing, right? You know, you need to have the right number of adults to young children in a child care center for it to be safe, and that's just a starting place, right? You also want those environments to be high quality, to be early learning spaces for young children, right? If you want those staff to stay in their jobs, then you need to, to pay them decently. The fact that child care is a costly <laughs> operation to run when it's good uh, is something that we shouldn't shy away from because it's about um, providing high-quality service. It's important to make this a public conversation, right? The stress and the strain of the child care crisis is often borne privately, but we can't let that continue anymore, right? We need our our elected leaders to know and uh, those who want our votes to know that we expect more. We expect Canada to, to catch up and to finally invest in child care. So, we need every party. I'd say that child care is an issue that, uh, you know, should should be of interest right across party lines because it's a pocketbook issue for parents, right? We need to be asking our elected officials and those who want our votes, you know, what they're going to do to solve the child care crisis, if they're willing to put uh, public dollars into creating a publicly funded child care system. You know, the good thing about about Canada now and the fact that we're, just starting off and thinking about how we're going to design such a program is that there's ample evidence of what works and what doesn't, right, from other countries' experiences. So we know that, you know, the way forward, really, in designing a child care system is to make it a publicly funded system where child care centers are given operational funding so that they can keep fees low and pay workers decently. The classic example is always, uh, you know, the Scandinavian countries, and to look at you know somewhere like Sweden um and that's because they do it very well and also because they've been doing it very well for a very long time right quebec started their childcare uh system in uh the late 1990s um and they brought in $5 a day childcare at that time um what's interesting about uh quebec is that they continue to be talking about about the system and they re- they recently had a you know a commission where they a public commission where one of the recommendations was further improvement of the childcare system to make it um you know more available and uh and more affordable for families. It's a good um example to look at because it shows that you know this is possible in a in a Canadian province. Um but I think that there's a lot we can learn from the Quebec experience as well um to make uh you know an, an even better <laughs> made in Ontario solution. Quebec had problems with childcare quality because simply because they allowed uh for profit child care services to continue to operate and to take public funds. And that was a mistake in setting up their system. They did a good job on affordability, but the quality wasn't there. And that's something that they're continuing to work on. So we can learn um, from the uh, the good things and the bad things in the Quebec system as they continue to evolve it and uh, and hopefully we can do even better here in Ontario. It should be in every parent's best interest that the people working in the programs are well paid um, and happy in their work because they're the people that are caring for your kids right so um we really need to have parents and early child educators working together. I think there would be nothing stronger for a politician than to have a, a parent and an e c e in their office lobbying for a, a child care program for a for a publicly funded child care program, and the parents saying... Look, we need uh, we need early childhood educators to be paid decently and to be happy in their work. And the ECE saying. And I need the parents that are using this service to have affordable fees to know that there's a space available to them. So if we each are advocating for each other uh, in a unified way, I think that's what'll make a difference.
0: Amazing. And where can people find you and the work of the Ontario uh, Coalition for Better Child Care?
2: At Childcare ON.
0: It's impossible to ignore the intersections of gender, race, socioeconomic status, and more when it comes to making the decision to start a family, or really any long-term planning, as a millennial or otherwise. The kind of work that you can count on, the kind of supports available, and the kind of attitudes and advocacy that inform these choices are deeply connected. It's unmistakable that the reshaping of both public policy and the understanding of our personal choices are required to allow those who want to be parents from any generation to see a pathway to making it possible and to know we are all better for it. Thanks for listening. Avocado Toast is produced by Katie Jensen with production assistance from Yasmin Maturin. It's hosted by me, Asma Malik, You can find our show notes at atkinsonfoundation.ca slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at Atkinson CF. Avocado Toast is the first podcast series on Atkinson's Just Work It platform for and by millennial workers.